All right. You can be seated if you can find find your seat there. Good to see you all. God bless you. Good morning. You can open to Colossians chapter 3, please. Colossians chapter 3. Uh, just a update. Um, we've had a couple folks ask, so I, I thought I'd share it first and second service. Uh, the land, please keep praying. Um, that meeting, some people asked they couldn't remember if the meeting was the first week of January or the third. It's supposed to be the third week of January. We're going to hear back uh, Messiah College about the uh, 10 acres. So we're, we're waiting to hear back whether they got board approval uh, to sell us the land on that. And so we've been praying, praying, praying. So please keep praying to find out whether the board, we just want God's will, whatever's supposed to happen. Um, and some people have asked, you know, well, what's the Lord done? You know, the Lord's raised $30,000 in the last, I don't know, a few weeks. So praise Jesus. I mean, I just, I'm blown away and just, I keep going, okay, God, where you guide, you provide. So um, I know, uh, you know, when I look at like 372, I'm like, wow, then, and I just, I just sit back and go, Lord, you got this. I don't need to think about any of this. Just, uh, I just want to be in his will. I think we all do. So keep praying. If you're new and you're visiting, you have no idea what we're talking about. Um, we're talking about buying land so we can build a bigger building for not only the church, but for the school. Um, so we can go to eventually middle school and high school and have a sanctuary that can hold anywhere between 500 to 1,000. So we don't have to have folks sit in the cafe or multiple services where we just can't get the body of Christ together. So it's been on our hearts to do that. Um, so just praying for discernment is all I can ask, just especially even favor with this board, uh, the president on that board, um, and the townships, because as most of you know, uh, churches, were tax exempt, so um, we don't derive tax revenue for them. So it's kind of interesting because uh, they like churches, but they like commercial companies a whole lot more that generate money for them. So... Be praying. We just want God's will. Colossians chapter 3. Last week we left off, uh, really verse 23. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion. And I imagine for many of us that was a, a sort of a, a wake-up call. Chapter 2 verse 23 there. When we started thinking about what have we subscribed to? Are we literally looking at every verse by verse, passage by passage, understanding of Scripture, or have we begun to, um, not intentionally or intentionally, subscribe to different doctrines of men, uh, whether it's uh, religion, legalism, or tradition? And, and, you know, I think Paul was pretty strong here when he said self-imposed. He told us exactly where it's coming from, itself. Uh, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. And I thought that spoke very uh, spiritually into what's going on in the battle, that no matter how we try to add, and I think this is one of the most important passages when you find a brother or sister that's really struggling with, you know, maybe they grew up, I grew up in a Catholic church where it really was a workspace mentality or different things like that. And with a right heart, truly, with a right heart and motive, wanting to do things that um, are seemingly good, but wanting to earn favor or trying to works. It's a works-based mentality, we call it. It, it. It's Jesus plus something then. We don't mean to make it that, but that's what happens. And what it does is this idea of the flesh and the indulgence of the flesh is we think somehow it's going to satisfy or appease that. But in reality, nothing but Jesus Christ alone can, can do that. 
There's no other doctrine of man. There's no other uh, ideology, of, you know, um, psychology or, or uh, anything like that, philosophy that's going to fill that. And Paul wants to settle that for these Christians, predominantly a Gentile church here in Colossae. He wants to settle that for them, that they're not constantly looking and searching and, and, and honestly also, and we have to talk about it, to guard against the wolves among the sheep. Okay, that's the other aspect of what Paul's dealing here with people spreading false doctrines, alternate doctrines of Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, right? So he begins by saying, look, these may indulge the flesh, but they're self-imposed and they have no value, none whatsoever. It's Jesus Christ and him crucified. We then will go into chapter 3. We're going to bow and pray, just bow our heads here and pray. But it's just, if we do one thing here this morning, please I know there are people that are still holding on to traditions or rituals. And I know it's difficult, but it's important to lay these things down. These things are not going to draw us closer to Jesus. They don't further the kingdom of God. They actually become the very things that, if we're not careful, become a wedge between us and Jesus Christ. And that's not God's desire. The work on the cross was complete. It says, we just read last week in chapter 2, the fullness of Christ. He's not grammatically challenged. He wouldn't have said full if there was something more that could be added to it. It's full. It's complete, just like our canon and our scripture. Amen? Father, we we come before you and we seek you with um, eyes and ears and spirits and souls and conscience here this morning to to bear out truth, Lord. We want to hear your truth. We pray that you will uh, prick our hearts and, Lord, remove the dross. We pray that you will settle things in our hearts that have to do with the, the carnality of man and these things of the earth compared to the things that are eternal and above. Lord, we don't want to be fickle. We don't want to be um, loosely standing on soil that's constantly shifting. Jesus, you're our sure foundation. You always have been and you always will be. And God, may nothing ever try to take the place of you, Jesus, in our hearts. Protect us from idolatry, Lord. Even if it's ignorance, Lord, it's still idolatry. We pray for your protection, your leading, and we pray that you'll speak to our hearts here this morning. And Lord, most importantly, you'll set your captives free. That if there's those that are here that have never heard this word, they've never studied the word of God, and today they, they just happen to come upon this teaching, this word, this radio ministry, this uh, teaching online, Lord, there are no coincidences. Let them know that you're speaking into their hearts right now. And we ought to listen to what the Spirit has to say. We pray this and ask this in your holy name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people prayed. Amen. Well, as we move into chapter 3, he says, if then, it's very important as we look at this bridge verse connecting these two, he's going to go in and talk about very clearly what really is happening or epidemic of our life in Christ Jesus. When we become saved and we're disciples of Christ, we have to make a choice. We'll either be pursuing the things of this earth, temporal, earthly things, worldly things, or we're going to be pursuing the things of heaven. There is no balance. Have you heard people say, you need to have moderation and balance in your life, right? It seems psychologically like good advice, right? It seems like a good philosophy. It's horrible when it comes to uh, scriptural teaching because God says it's the fullness of truth and love. You can't teeter-totter this. You can't have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom and try to uh, please man 
and try to please God. Or you can't try to follow the things of man, like having a master on this earth, the prince of the air, because if you're not following Jesus, who are you following? Everybody's following somebody and something. Okay, that's just the reality. And so he's going to draw us very quickly to the fact that as believers, that's you, born-again believers in Jesus Christ, if you're here and you know Lord Jesus, there's something different about you. There's a whole lot that's actually different about you. Not only have you been redeemed by Jesus, not only have you been given a new nature, but you've also been given the ability to live out the Christian life through the Holy Spirit. And that's his desire for us. So he says, if then you were raised with Christ, please understand what he's talking about. Remember Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection? It's a very important illustration picture for you and I as well. That in our death, certainly Christ without sin, lo, the old man is dead. And the new man, the new creation is life. The resurrection, the first fruits of all resurrection, Jesus Christ. Not the resuscitation. Please understand there's a vast difference between a resuscitation and resurrection. He spoke of this, if you look back to chapter 2, verse 12, when he said, buried with him in baptism. That was the premise of when he was dealing and targeting specifically the legalists. He was going out and so why would you listen to these men that would come into the church and give you a different gospel, a different doctrine, when they couldn't save you? Why would you, for any reason, listen to their vain, empty philosophy? But now, he goes in and says, because you were baptized, he goes in chapter 3 and says, but you're raised with Christ, and he's going to make the similar point. Why would you be thinking on the things that are earthly and temporal? So he took, you get where he's going, he's kind of like, you know, amping it up, right? It began with, why would you listen to philosophies and legalism and doctrines of men if Christ Jesus saved you? Why would you go back to the flesh pots? Why would you go back to the old man and the sin and the, the way you used to live? Okay, check. We get that. Now we sing, well, wait a minute. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, why would you even be so concerned or consumed with all the matters of earth as you should be consumed and have the mind of Christ. Not to say that we don't live here, certainly we live here, but it shouldn't consume us, right? The things of heaven, our citizenship consumes us. He says, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. In Greek, the idea above there, it, it speaks directly to the heavens, right? He's talking about the abode of Christ. And just in case you didn't get that, he says, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. So what is he drawing a clear dichotomy right now, a clear difference? There are things that are temporal, and there are things that are eternal. Amen? You with me? You listening? Uh, temporal and eternal. And he makes a very clear difference between the two. And he says, if you are in Christ, which a born-again believer is, with Christ, we should not be seeking these things on earth. See, I think much of our confusion, much of our anxiety, our sorrow, and the depravity and difficulty that happens on this earth is because for whatever reason, we think we're supposed to juggle. We think we're supposed to be keeping all the balls in the air as we're juggling all the affairs and cares of this earth when we were never called to that yoke. We weren't called to it. We weren't given a custom yoke crafted for it. It should be foreign to us. But when we take on those things, we do it in our strength, not God's, because it's not his leading for us. And that explains a lot when you think about some of the different things spiritually, from a spiritual formation perspective, that we go through in life. 
I think of our soldiers in war. They were never meant to see death the way that they've had to experience it. And it shapes them and it wrecks them. It should wreck any one of us. Because it's not God's design. It wasn't just God's design that man would kill man, right? Originally in the garden, it was, there was none of, no murder. No, it was none of that. But thorns and thistles, right? This earth is passing away and dying. And the bad and terrible things and evil things of this earth, while we, in some ways, were bulletproof, if I could say it that way, in Christ, things certainly shake us at our core, don't they, in our hearts when we see other people that are hurting and struggling, right? Losing a loved one, losing a child different things that go on. I mean, they, they rock us to our core. We're to bear each other's burdens. They're very difficult. L losing a brother in war, you know. We need to set our mind on things above, he tells us. Please look here in verse 2. Set your mind on the things above, not on earth, because we are citizens of heaven, right? Um, you've heard it. Heaven-minded, what? No earthly good. We've heard that saying, heaven-minded, no earthly good, right? Hold your finger here, please. Turn to Romans chapter 6, verse 5. When we begin to think upon the work that Christ has done inside you and I, when we received him as Lord and Savior, it's good to look at these things. Because he did something very unique and special with us as his children compared to his creation. He has united us and built us together. It is the body of Christ, right? It's not Calvary Chapel. It's not the, this isn't the only place where the Word of God goes for it, right? It's the body of Christ. As long as the Word of God is going from the pulpit, it's the body of Christ worldwide. Look at chapter 6, verse 5. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, right? We just read that in chapter 2 as well and the baptism is death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his what? His resurrection, his, his victory, his life. You can't have one without the other, we learn here, right? He's, they go together that way. So he's telling us, set your mind on these things. We should. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, please, in, in your Bibles. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, please. I draw your attention... Oh, I love this. Let's go to verse 1. I was going to have it start at verse 6, but this whole passage is wonderful. Ephesians chapter 2. And you have made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin. That's who we were. That is not who we are as born-again believers in Christ. Ephesians 2. In which you once walked according to the course of this what? World. The God of this world, by the way. Satan, the enemy. According to the prince of the power of the air. Who's that speaking of specifically? Satan. The spirit of now who works in the sons of disobedience. We're going to see that uh, in, in uh, chapter 3 here in a moment. Sons of disobedience. These are not talking about believers. These are unbelievers. These are people that have rejected Jesus Christ. <laughs> Among whom also were once conducted ourselves in the lust, right? We, nobody's arrived. We have all done these things. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. 
we're filthy rags. That's what scripture teaches. I'm a filthy rag. I'm only redeemed because of Christ Jesus. Nothing I could have ever done of myself. I couldn't save myself. And I don't know about you, but that brings me a great peace because it's not reliant on my ability, and it never has been. He says, by faith you have been saved, right? Grace through faith that we would not do what? Boast. We receive the righteousness of God. That's when we have to stop and think back. Why are we making it Jesus plus something? That's legalism. That's, that's, it's pharisaical, you know? Among whom also we were once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling our desires of the flesh and of our minds, and were by nature children of, please see this, wrath. This is the only time we see this very clear picture. God says that wrath is being poured out. We're going to read that here in chapter 3 of Colossians. We're going to read it in chapter 6 of Revelation. We're going to read it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. The wrath of God is never poured out on the children of God. He doesn't beat the bride. We were children of the world before we were saved. Do you understand that? We, we were redeemed. We received a new nature. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. But please notice, all of these things are in the past tense. These ideas of wrestling with the flesh, fulfilling the lust of the flesh. These are not things for us today. It doesn't mean we don't sin. We all do. Everyone here sins. I've sinned. I mean, that would be a lie to say contrary. Certainly that's not our desire or our aim. He goes on to say, among whom we're all conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling desires of the flesh and minds by the nature of children, nature of wrath, just as others. But God, thank you, Jesus, who is rich in mercy because of his great love in which he loved us. You can read Psalm 103 further on that. And even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. There it is. And raised up. There it is again. Very fitting for the context we're in in Colossians 3. Together and made us sit together. We just read that, right? With Jesus Christ sitting in heaven, right? At the right hand of the Father. In the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, that is a gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus of good works, which God prepared beforehand, and we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that you once were Gentiles in the flesh and called the uncircumcision by what God was called um, the circumcision made in the flesh of hands. That at that time you were, th you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been what? Brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ, right? So there's a whole lot that we read right there where God is speaking to our hearts and he says, you are not who you were and never can be again. He holds us in his hand, and he never loses a single soul that he holds in his hand. Nobody can pluck him out of his hand, out of Christ's hand that way. So because of that, what business do we have setting our mind on anything that has earthly affairs? A good soldier never puts his mind on the affairs of this earth, right? A soldier of Christ I'm speaking of. 
but of the things that are heavenly, but of God and the things he would have us. We're not to entangle ourselves, Scripture says. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Did you see that? For you died. Spiritually speaking, right? You were born again. The idea is, you know, die once, or, you know, born once, die twice. Born twice, only die once. We never die spiritually again as born-again believers in Christ. We simply pass from this earth to our heavenly abode. Right? 2 Corinthians 5.8, absent with the body, present with the Lord. We're not Old Testament saints where we go to Abraham's bosom and go through that. Those captives have been set free. They're with Jesus Christ in heaven, and that's our abode as well. For you died, and your life is hidden within Christ in God. Please notice that with me. There is no distangling this. There is no compartmentalizing this. You can't take a part of your life and Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, behave and act one way. And then on Wednesdays and Sundays when you come to church, hey, I'm a Christian, man. You get out and you pull out your Christianese dictionary just before you walk in. Praise the Lord, brother. No. You can't compartmentalize this. This is your life. He is in you and upon you. And there is no separation. That's why there can never be balance. Somebody's driving or leading and somebody's always following. Who's leading in your heart? Because there's a battle of wills going on. It's a battle of the flesh and the spirit, Galatians 5.16. Who leads in your heart? That's an individual, personal, nobody, your husband can't help you with that, your wife can't help you. That's an individual decision and choice that every single believer has to make. Who is leading in your heart? Who are you following? Because that old man is dead, although we drag him around, don't we? And your life is hidden within Christ in God, right? We were died to whatever was in the past, what we used to live to. When Christ, who is our life, please underline that. Did you catch that? Christ is our life. It's not We think following Christ is a good idea. Christ is our life. That is our identity. That is how we are understood in Christ's eyes. That's how we should be understood in the world's eyes as a new creation, entangled beautifully, perfectly with Christ Jesus, unable to be separated. Because in essence, by trying to undo that, you kill one or the other. You understand what I'm saying there? That when you have a plant and you crossbreed, or it comes together, two branches, and they come and they form one, a threefold cord, we read about in Scripture, Ecclesiastes, but this idea of what Christ has done, he does it spiritually speaking in some capacities in a marriage too. You become what? One flesh. Can't break them apart. If you do, something's broken, right? Something's never the same. But when you turn around and he does that work in you and he comes in your heart far greater, far more significant, spiritually speaking. That entanglement within you, you become a part of Christ and he is certainly a part of you. You cannot separate that. And so trying, you kill or you remove a portion of yourself to do so. You're no longer whole, which is why he says in Christ, we're what? Full, complete, whole. 
Now do you understand why Paul's using these? God's not grammatically challenged in the Holy Spirit. He's using very specific words to describe our relationship with Christ Jesus. And because he is our life, it appears then you will also appear with him in glory. Praise God, right? We know that we will appear with Jesus Christ in glory. Now, I want you just to think about that. 27% of your Bibles, you hear me say it all the time, is prophetic, right? We, we read over and over again over 1,300 different promises in the Word of God, from your Old Testament all the way through your New Testament. Prophetically speaking, over 1,350 to be specific. We have seen the fulfillment of at least 700 of those. 500 just tied even to the Messiah and his life and reign, by the way, which is beyond contestation. But even if you take the 700 or plus of the promises, and I would encourage you, if you have time, Wolver wrote a wonderful book, and he kind of captures them, but they all draw back to Scripture. Every single one of them has been fulfilled perfectly. God cannot lie. Every one of his promises found in the Word of God is either coming true, right, or has been fulfilled. We have no other work of literature or anything else that can do that, or even speak that way. No other man can do that. This Bible you have before you is supernatural. I, I don't know if we really appreciate that when we pick it up and we open it, that we begin to realize we're meeting with God, and that he is reaching through creation into our hearts through his spoken word here this morning, and or the written word as we devotionally go to him, and he puts it right into our heart supernaturally, and he fuses it. He fuses it. Compared to those that may not be a believer or may be wayward, what happens? It begins to fall. We read about the different types of soil. But for those that are in Christ Jesus, it's fused. I encourage you to go back and study church history. Look at the early church fathers. Go back. They didn't always have their Bibles with them, but at the right time when Christ moved through them, their mouths would open and the word of God went forward. And they didn't even know where it came from many times when they would speak truth. They knew it was the Holy Spirit, but they didn't preconceive. Even Jesus said, don't worry about what you're going to say in those moments. Let the Holy Spirit speak. But friends, I would suggest to you and argue to you, what's poured in can be poured out. It's only what's poured in. If you pour in Hollywood, if you pour in the world, if you pour in the flesh, guess what's going to come out? Carnality. That's not a magic trick, right? That's just simple understanding of the word of God. It's supernatural. It goes in, it purifies, and what comes out is true and holy. Therefore, put to death your members. You So far, you were like, okay, check. I got it. I love that appearing in glory with God in heaven. I'm in, right? We're all in. And then we got to therefore put to death. And everybody's like, um, I don't like this. What did he tell us to put to death? Your members which are on earth. There he is again, dealing with the temporal versus the eternal. Now, he goes very clearly through what these are. Fornication, right? uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. All of these are self-focused. All of these are inconsistent with the Christian walk. Um, the first one that we look at here is fornication. That's the Greek word for pornea. It's used 26 times in the Greek, 
in five unique forms. Three of those times, are it's used in a plural capacity. We don't have time to go through all of that here this morning. Uh, it's Matthew 5.32, uh, Matthew 9.19.9, and Matthew 7.2, if you want to see the passages that are written in the Greek in plural form. But the idea here is this word pornea, and it's very, very important. It means illicit sexual intercourse. Now, some of you are saying, okay, but please understand what's, in com- what's comprised of that. And, and, and I've, if our young people are here, uh, look, I, I can't be handcuffed. I'm, I need to speak the word of God. I, this is very important for all of you to, to hear this, okay? And, and maybe there's conversations that need to go on in the, uh, later on in the home on these things. But adultery, right? That is under this word pornea. This is what that's talking about. So uh, Jesus Christ clarified that in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, the sermon, you know, on the mount there, the, what I call the um, discipleship boot camp. He was very clear when he was talking about that, that lust isn't just in the form of adultery, isn't just the act of sexual, uh, uh, illicit sexual relations or intercourse outside of marriage. It's even the thought of that, the lust. He says, I say unto you, you have committed adultery. So I I don't want to raise the hands necessarily this morning, but everybody here, I want to know, is there anybody here? Look, I'm not even going to say in your life. I'll, I'll even just nail it down. Is there anybody in the last month? You're driving on 15, you're driving on 83, you got them big billboards up, right? Some girl or some man, because girls don't think we don't, you know, the enemy will go after anybody, he don't care. Men or women, you see an attractive picture of the girl, you look the first time, okay, no harm, no foul, there's nothing, you're just, you're seeing with your eyes, right? It's the gate to your heart. But then you, whoa, and you take a second look. And I'm not even saying it's got to be, uh, uh, inappropriate as far as your look, like looking at body parts. I'm just saying you take a second look, and then a third. There's nobody here this month, you know, in the last, excuse me, not this month. There's nobody here in general, and in this last month that hasn't done that. I'm willing to assure you that in some capacity, one of these, if it's not this one, we're going to go to covetousness next. There's going to be somebody here, okay? The reality is when I look at this, all guilty is charged, All guilty is charged. Fornication. I think of our young people. Right? Shacking up. You know that term. means you're not married and you're living with someone, you know, a husband or and you're having sexual relations and you're not married. The Bible teaches that sin. Now I know, because I was young, right? I know I love them and she loves me and I love him and oh yeah, it's good. I love them. And, you know, we're going to get married one day. Uh-huh. Sin. Look, it, it, it's, got, it's not about that. It's about honoring God's word, his truth, and his protection for us. There's something very beautiful that God has given to us in the intimacy. He created sex. It's not bad right? It's beautiful in a marriage. It's wonderful, right? It's not something we should run away from. It's something that we're to enjoy. It's not just for procreation. But he defines it. He created it. And it's not to be used, that's something that's cheapened or something that's used in an inappropriate way to fill an emotional or a physiological desire. It, you, you just wreck it. You cheapen it. Homosexuality. Very clearly, the Bible teaches, and we're going to look at that in a second, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, that's sin. That's just not with men, with lesbianism, right? 
I hate to say this today, we got to say all intercourse with animals, bestiality. These are all under the umbrella of this word pornea in the Greek. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, please. Remember, these things are past tense for us. We are not to be walking in these things. Now, look, there's a very clear difference. We're going to read this passage. And, and I want to just give you this prescription before I read the passage. Because I know there's some people in here that are going to walk out of here today wrecked and scared and wondering, did they, you know, have you lost your salvation? Let me just clear this up right now. You cannot lose your salvation. What we're talking about, and I even said, look, all of us, have we lost it at one time or another? We look, we shouldn't. Do, yeah, those are inconsistencies, but those are not the norm. There is a question that we need, to, we need to address. It's biblical, so we must talk about it. What happens if we find our lives consumed with these sins all the time? I think it's fair that we have to ask the question, no man can judge you. I certainly can't, and I can't tell you if you're saved. But I do think you need to go to Christ Jesus and say, Lord, if I continue in these sexual, these sexual sins or sexual morality, because that's one we're on, and uh, I keep doing it and doing it and doing it, and I think it's okay, and I, I don't see what the problem is, and yet his word is telling me I shouldn't do that, then I think we have a lordship issue. I think we have a question. I know it's not popular today, and I know a lot of churches aren't talking about it. They call it stuff today instead of sin. And that's exactly the problem we're having. These things are sin. This is not Pastor Matt thinks. This is the word of God speaking. And we need to yield and submit and surrender to the holy God of the universe. And he doesn't do these things because he's looking to bash us or take our good time away. Ultimately, it's to protect us. He's keeping us from things that could harm and hurt us because he's a good father and he hasn't abrogated the throne. So if we look here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I, I just draw your attention down to verse 9. He says, do you not know, as though it should be common knowledge in the church? He expects us to know this because he expects us to be reading our Bibles. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Again, if you're a born-again believer in Christ, do you blow it? Yeah, I blow it all the time. That doesn't make me... Or that doesn't mean that I'm not saved. No, that means that Christ is doing the work of sanctification in my life. And he's making me into that perfect man, right? Ephesians chapter 4, the fullness of Christ. Salvation's in a moment, sanctification's in a lifetime. But that's what we see here. But if my aim or my enjoyment is to continue in that sin, I, that's a red flag. I need to stop and go, wait a minute. Because I don't aim to do those things. Right? I don't aim to turn around, you know, my Buffalo Bills, right? I'm from Rochester, New York. My Buffalo Bills won last night. Did you guys catch that game last night? How about it, right? <laughs> Come on. My boys. My Buffalo Bills, right? I would love one of those jerseys, right? Josh Allen. Sign his little John Hancock on there, right? So I go on the website. I'm looking. Oh, that'd be kind of cool. Did I even say, Lord, is this what, do you want me to have a Josh Allen Buffalo Bills jersey just this one time since 1994? Not that I'm counting. I mean, 1994, <laughs> that they haven't even come close to winning a championship since 1994. I'm a patient man, Lord. I'm long-suffering. Is it so much? Did I pray that? No, I didn't. 
what did I do? I went on, you know, the auction thing because I'm not going to pay with, you know, the full price. I can't afford it. So I go on the auctions and try to see if I can bid, you know, 25. And, you know, I, oh, I got it for like 10 minutes until somebody bids and then, you know. But the reality is, what is that? That's coveting, right? I'm coveting. That. Did, did I, does God want me to have that? I don't know. I didn't even ask God, right? I'm just being honest. and tr- Pray for me, okay? Pray for me, right? <laughs> right? I got off the cheesecake, and now I'm on to the buffalo. Bill. But <laughs> some of you have been with us know what I'm talking about. And don't you judge me, because we just talked about this, right? All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. But look what he says. This is not what he's talking about. This passage here is written to those that are continuing in sin, and they, they're, they're going to God and saying, no, God, I don't really think you mean what you say, right? It's not an inconsistency. It's a continuation in these kind of sins. The question is, you really do need to pray. Have you asked Jesus Christ to be your Lord, or are you just looking for fire insurance? And I think that's a fair, fair point. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, here it is, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, that means brawlers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. He makes the point in verse 11, as were such, what? As were such were some of you. That's who we were. Remember the old man? That's not who we are. If our aim is to do and continue in these lifestyles, there's a spiritual problem. If it happens because we blow it every once in a while, well, that's different. You know, we can come to Jesus, we can ask for forgiveness, and be, we can be restored in right relationship. Because he's all, after all, he's given us in 2 Corinthians the gospel of reconciliation. He's not looking to, to turn around and just, you know, well, you know, that's, men does, man does that, right? Well, why did you do this? Well, blah, 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 you know, and just beach it, beach and beach it. Jesus is like, no, man, I paid it all. I paid it all. If you're truly repentant, not sorry, but truly repentant, he's faithful and just to forgive all those who will ask him. But you were washed, but you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of God. So we see that here, that he's done that work in us. We, we need to put to death those members, that, that member of fornication, right? The next one we have here is uncleanness. Akarthesia. Akarthesia in the Greek, okay? It's used ten times. In four unique forms, it speaks to a moral sense and impurity of lust, luxurious, uh, profligate. If you know what profligate means, that's a, that's a living, it's a noun, or even if it's used as a noun or adjective, it means recklessly wasting your money on extravagant luxury. That's sin, right? The next word we see is pathos, right? Passion in the Greek, pathos. It's used three times in three unique forms. It's, can use, it can be used, by the way, in the Greek, the word itself is not negative or positive. It, context determines how this word is used. In context here, it's used in a negative capacity. It's talking about a depraved passion. It's not talking about, well, it's good to be passionate about certain things. Paul, Saul of Tarsus, before he was saved, he had a zeal, right? There's nothing wrong. It was misguided and misdirected. God got him saved, and then it became a passion for Jesus Christ. Right? So the passion's not necessarily bad, but if it's a vile passion or depraved, that's a problem. And then this other word, uh, well, evil desire, right? Kakos. 
Some of you have remembered, I know when I was growing up and, you know, you were changing the baby's diapers, kakas. You've heard that term, kakas? You said, did, did you even know you were using actually a Greek term? It, it, you know, we think of it as, you know, the baby's waist, changing the diaper, right? But that word actually in the Greek, it actually came from this idea originally for evil desire. And if you've changed the baby's, uh, baby's uh, uh, diaper there, I understand, man. That, that, that stuff, it, it's evil sometimes, right? But it's used 51 times and 13 unique forms. Look, you got to laugh. Come on now. It speaks to, <laughs> it speaks, it speaks to morality. A mode of thinking, feeling, acting, base, whether it's, you know, the idea of a uh, wrong or a wicked person. It encompasses all those. It's not just the act of doing it, it's the very thought of it is encompassed in this Greek word uh, kakos, which is, again, evil desire. I'd just like to read something to you. As I, I was going back and doing some, some study on this, just because I, I expect these things from the unbeliever and the, and, and the world that doesn't know Jesus Christ, because they're blinded, right? They don't know. We were as were, we were once as they were, right? We understand that. And I thought it would be interesting to go back and see if, you know, Pew Research had done any studies on this. It just so happens, uh, in January 22nd, 2018, uh, American religious groups vary widely in their views of abortion. And I thought that's a pretty clear-cut issue here, right, for the church. It should be. And so I was reading, it says, more than 40 years uh, after Roe v. Wade legalized abortion nationwide, most Americans, 57%, support legal abortion. Just think about that. Almost 60% in 2018 say that they support legal, uh, legal abortion, according to the Pew Research uh, Center survey. Uh, the minority is around 40% that said say it should be illegal. Now, what was striking to me on this study was not that most of America thinks abortion should be legal because Isaiah 5, they will call evil good and good evil. I'm not ignorant to that, nor are any of us here this morning. But when I began looking at denominations, and I began looking at this within the church, this was very striking. I actually have a chart, if any of you ever want to see this. It goes through and it lists the 31 top movements or denominations within um, Christianity, whether they're all biblically Christian or not, I'll let you decide on those things. I think what was most striking to me and most concerning is I think of the two cults uh, ranked some of the highest, and that was just burdening to my heart because of the rest of the church that isn't uh, supposedly a cult and yet subscribes to these evil desires. 75% of all Jehovah's Witnesses and 70%, again, uh, uh, cult say abortion should be illegal. Okay. So I looked at that and I thought, well, that's interesting. So we got number one, Jehovah's Witnesses with uh, basically 18% of the people that would claim to be Jehovah's Witnesses would say that, it's, that it should be legalized abortion and 75% should it be illegal and then you have some random in there of 7% that don't weigh in. Next was the Church of God. You had Assemblies of God, three, Church of the Nazarene. Mormon was five. Uh, 27% said it should be legal, 66%, or sorry, 27% uh, said it should be legal, 70% said it should be illegal. Again, these are cults at this point, not all of them, certainly not Assemblies of God and what have you. The Southern Baptist Convention, and now is where I started, my heart starts, uh, 
30% of the, Southern, of the Southern Baptist Church believe that abortion should be legalized. 30% of the church. And 66% says it should be illegal. Churches in Christ, you go to the Seventh-day Adventists, right? Again, cult-like. 42% of them say that it should be legal. And 54% say it should be illegal. I just want you to see where we're at. And we still haven't got to the rest of the mainstream denominations in Christianity. Lutheran, American Baptist, 10 and 11, Catholic, 48% say it should be legalized, 47% illegal. That means almost half of the church in Catholicism, Orthodox Christianity as they would call it, staggering, 53% believe that it should be legalized. 45% should be legal. More people in the Orthodox Christian church actually believe that abortion should be legalized compared to being illegal. After that, you got the Presbyterian, you got the Muslim. Muslim, 55% think it should be legal. 37% think it should be illegal. And it just goes downhill quickly from there. The Anglican Church, the church in England, 56% think it should be legalized. 38% think it should be illegal. They've left the word of God. This is what happens when we aspire to a religion or a work of man. We remove truth and everything becomes muddy. What was even striking, you get to 18 and it says all U.S. adults. And by the way, there's another, whatever, 11 or 12 denominations that I'm going to read in a moment that are the more popular denominations in America. But even the U.S. adults that are unchurched, say 57% of them, almost 60, think it should be legal and 40 says it should be illegal. That's the unbeliever. That's not the church. After that, you have the Methodist church the Lutheran Church, the Presbyterian Church of USA, the Hindu, the Episcopal Church, the Buddhist, the Jewish, if you go to the Jewish, it's 83% of those that practice Judaism, according to the survey, understand there's different pockets, just like anything in Christianity, 83% think that abortion should be legal, and 15% think it should be illegal. Agnostics fall right after the the. the Jewish denomination, or whatever you want to call it. Agnostics are 87% legal and 11% illegal. Only under that is the atheist. And then the last is the Unitarian Universalists. They don't know what they're believing. That's a kumbaya. They just, 90% of them believe that it should be legal, and 8% think it should be illegal. I just want you to think about that for a minute. I just want you to let that set in. That is the data. Now, granted, it's 2021, but that is the data. And again, surveys are only as good as the population that you're able to survey, right? They did have quite a large survey in this one, quite a large uh, number of people that were participants. But as we read through these things, like evil desires, now you know why the Bibles were taken out of schools. Now you know why the Bibles and prayer were taken out of schools. Now you know why many churches in America, and no, by the way, not just America. If you go to England and the UK, the numbers are even more staggering. Europe, Welsh, the, last, the, the latest, well, not the latest cover chapel, was the latest through the movement, but you go back to the latest really after that was the Welsh revival. They went over to India, right, as missionaries. And you look at the numbers today. America needs to go over to Europe and start planting. And, and quite honestly, you know, China, the underground churches need to come here. 
because they're reading the Word of God. The Middle East, there were people coming to Christ. But Americans have traded in their Bibles for man's wisdom, for anything but Jesus. And why? Well, I believe that leads to our last, not last, but the, in this list here, what is it? Pleonakasia, right? Pleonakasia. Covetness. Covetness. 51, sorry, 10 times in six unique forms. It means a greedy desire to have more, like a Buffalo Bills jersey. Coveting, right? Of avarice is an English term, actually, but we don't use it anymore. Avarice. Do you, anybody know what that is? Avarice or avarice? It's an extreme greed for wealth and material gain. I just want you to understand, some of you are going, well, you know, if I had to think of America and the money and the wealth we have in this country, the mammon and the chasing of mammon, the greed, if I had to think of the sin that has consumed us, some of you say, well, pastor, I think you're being ridiculous. Aren't you getting a little extreme? Really, let me remind you of somebody in scripture. His name was Judas. He went and rejected Jesus Christ, betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. Don't you tell me that mammon and the sin of covetousness is something that we should, you know, well, it's just covetousness. It leads, men, it leads men and women right to the pit of hell because it teaches us to put something in between our hearts and Christ. And this needs to be preached and I pray to God this is preached from more pulpits because we need to stand up and we need to adhere to the word of God. We need to be followers of Christ. Now, we read all these things and, and what's the last thing it says there? It's very, very important as we go back to this in verse five. He says, which is idolatry? This is everything. Oh my, this, this passage and this verse, what did we just learn? That all of the, you know, um, pornea, uncleanness, passion, uh, pathos, uh, evil desires, covetousness, uh, pleonakosia, all of these, covetousness, right? They all have their roots and their vice within idolatry. That word here is used four times with three unique forms. This idea, idea of idolatry, the way it's being used here. It means vice or it means to spring. You know, something springs into action. It springs from. So if we were treating a patient and they came in and they gave us some symptoms, we often try to treat the symptoms rather than what? The root cause. Are you with me? This is describing what happens. We look we look at addictions ministries. Those are very good. But until we have an addictions ministry that understands the root cause is a spiritual formation issue or a spiritual issue, we're not helping. We're really not. You, you know my past, right? Alcohol, I mean, before I was a pastor and many, many years ago, alcoholism, drugs, whatever, right? It was Jesus. It's always been Jesus. And my brothers coming alongside, uh, being able to have superior groups that bear one another, that understand it's a spiritual condition, and to be able to lift each other up in that and not try to go to some, you know, psychosis. No, we need to treat it what it is. It, it's important. It all stems from idolatry because it's the root of these vices. I just want everybody here to think about that, to meditate on that, okay, for a moment. I, I'm going to say it this bluntly. It's not an addiction. It's really, really not. 
It's not a disease as the way the modern philosophy or psychology has tried to convince the culture and population at large. It's a doctrine of victimization. That's what it is. You know, you've got these 15, 12, 11, whatever steps. You've got, no, Jesus. And then once you get saved, you need a support group of like-minded believers that can come around you and you hold each other accountable. I was just talking to a brother this morning about how he attends, you know, a, a ministry in a Calvary Chapel for that. And, and we've been known, I mean, Calvary Chapel, <laughs> you know, when you think about, I mean, look at half of the pastors that got saved in the movement. You know, there was a great book written before Pastor Chuck passed years and years ago. And he goes through and he looks at the first pastors that were part of the movement that came out. They didn't have fancy seminary degrees. They loved Jesus. They were part of the last greatest revival that we have had on this earth. And it was called the Jesus Movement. And it was by our young people. It actually started with our teens and our, our college. And they were coming in and they were like, man, we have never heard this truth. And they were getting wrecked because they had been given milk at these other churches. And they came in and got meat. And they were like, man, this is awesome. And they even wrote songs, you know. I think of so many of the music that was written there, you know, short hair, long people. It's not about religion no more. It's about relationship. These young people were teaching 70 and 60 and 50-year-olds what it is to have a walk with Christ in intimacy. It was amazing. Pastor Joe Foch, some of you know him, he was interviewed um, by UPenn and some of the work in Philly because he was part of that movement that came out of Costa Mesa. He came here. And he says, man, what, what, this, the Calvary Chapel, how did this, how did, you know, what is, he's a Jesus. No, 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 really, yeah, but, but what, was there a program? Was there something? No, man, I was on LSD. I was, I was on drugs. I was drinking. We were going out to the desert, getting naked. It was crazy. We didn't even wear we high half the time. And then all of a sudden, this guy, he comes in, and my friend's like, hey, man, you got to go hear this teaching. It's, on, it's in the Bible. And he goes into the church, and, you know, we get to the door, and everybody's got three-piece suits on, and we're walking in with jeans and raggedy clothes. Some of us not even having shoes on, which I love that. And he's like, so he comes in, and he just, you know, he's like, hey, the carpet gets dirty. And Pastor Chuck turned around. He goes, well, maybe the carpet's too nice then. Maybe the chairs are too nice if people can't come in as they are and worship. You see, I mean, this is, this is different than anything you've ever heard. It was simple. It was the Holy Spirit. And from that movement, men have gone and, and ministries, I mean, ministries of military, ministries to, um, you know, prison. I mean, what the Lord has done because people love Jesus more than they love their own selves. But, but through that movement, we, we had people that came in and and they were wrecked. They, you know, my pastor's dad, I mean, they actually put him, it's funny, they actually put his wife, Rosemary, at the time. We don't really have time, but I'm going to take a moment just to share this because it's a cool testimony. So Rosemary, they were back in California. This is in the 60s and 70s. Pastor Bill gets saved, right? He's on a construction site. Bill Gallatin was his name. And he's working and he's framing. And he's putting together houses and he's just, you know, he was Boy, he had a mouth on him. You know, he was a typical, you know, guy's guy, right, typically. And he's, you know, doing these things. And he's building these houses. And one of the guys came up one day. He got saved. He had gone to one of the uh, teachings, heard the Bible, and was like, man, I need Jesus. And he, he gets saved. He goes and he starts talking to, to Bill about, Pastor Bill, about this. And Bill hears these things. He's like, man, this, it's that simple. It's Jesus. It's not Jesus plus religion. It's not all these other things. It's he mean he really loves me. 
He loves not what I can do for him, not the money I can give, but he really loves me. And he latched on to that. And he's like, that's everything. I never have experienced that. Not from family, not from other people. I was being honest. He was being honest. This is amazing. He gets saved. He goes home to his wife. Rosemary, you're not going to believe this. She's home, right? She was a nurse. She worked in a hospital. She turns around. She gets home. She's like, what's up? He's like, we need, you need Jesus. And she's like, hi, Bill. How was your day? But he starts going on. He's like, no, we got to pray in the house. We got to anoint the house with oil. We got to cast out the demons. We got to. And she's like, whoa, slow your roll. What just happened here? What's going on? And so what does she do? Like any good, loving wife, she calls up and has them committed. No lie. You can't make this stuff up. Has them committed. They literally come to the house. They, they got remember, 60s and 70s. My mom worked 30 years for the Rochester Psychiatric Center. I'm very familiar with these. So she turned around and he came to the house. They grabbed Pastor Bill. They're like, you're coming with me. He's like, but no, it's Jesus. Yeah, okay, honey, we're going to get you help. So as he goes in, he's in the hospital. He's in there for like a week. Now, a week goes by and she's like, what is, you know, she's obviously just got two boys uh, my pastor Scott and Jeff and Pastor Jeff and just, you know, everything's going on. She's, what are we going to do? And she's, I gotta, I gotta go see what's going on. Maybe they've fixed them. Maybe they fixed them. So, so she walks in and you got to sign in even back then. She walks in, she comes in, he's in the cafeteria. He's doing a Bible study. All the doctors and nurses are sitting around the table with the Bible and they're like, what? And he's getting them saved. As a matter of fact, you've heard of Pastor, Pastor Henry Ganey. I've had him come here and teach on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He was one of the guys. He was one of the doctors. He turned around. He went back and was talking to Rosemary. Rosemary goes in. She has to, as a nurse, she has to come and assist the doctors one day. Who do you think walks through the door as the doctor? Pastor Henry Ganey. And so here they are doing operation or whatever, and she's helping out. And he's like, boy, your husband's on fire for the Lord. You too? <laughs> it wasn't long. She came to Calvary Chapel. She, she sat. She heard the word of God. She got saved. She came up. Tears coming. Pastor Bill, tears gone. His wife got saved. I mean, now, did he get off drugs day one? No. It took him like months, right? Because, man, they were doing heavy drugs back then. And and, you know, it was peace, love, and, and sex. You know, the, you know the movement, right? It was going on. And so Pastor, <laughs> Pastor Chuck is such a father. He, he's like, guys, he would take them to passages like this. And he says, as were some of you, not as you are, but as were some of you. He's not who you are, are anymore. You're a new creation. God's going to restore that mind. Half of those guys went out and they planted churches. You know who they are. If I tell you their names, you've probably heard of them if you listen to Hope FM. Joe Foch, Raul Reese, almost shot his wife. Got saved because of what happened in Vietnam and the war and what it had done to him. Mike McIntosh met with president, presidents. He used to meet with Billy Graham regularly. I mean, you can't make this up. What God did, how he restored the mind, how he freed them of the addiction, how he took away this desire for evil desire, passion, uncleanness, pornea, and covetousness. These guys gave up everything. Some of them left wealthy jobs, Wall Street jobs. They didn't care anymore. 
because they met the living God and they knew nothing else would come close. Well, when we look at this idea of this doctrine of victimization, it cheats people. That's why none of these things are actual disease. These are just symptomatic of a spiritual problem. I've said it before to an acquaintance. I know a doctor. I said, man, what it would be like if it was the days when people, when they were hurting, they came to the pastor first in the church. They came for counsel. Today, when something's off, we run to doctors. Nothing wrong with doctors and nurses. We need them. Praise God. But we don't realize the spiritual formation or conditions of what happened. So we don't come in and talk about these things. Now, certainly there's times where I meet with people and I'm like, you need to go, you you know, this is physiological. You need to go to the doctor, certainly. But a lot of times when they're they're dealing with things like sorrow, you know, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 3, you know, sorrow is better than laughter. I never knew that was in my Bible. Yeah, it's in there. You're living in a lost and dying world. There's going to be good days and bad days. And some days it's going to hit you harder because you're going to bear that. That doesn't make anything wrong with you. I think of our soldiers that, you know, they get labeled PTSD. There's nothing wrong with you. You saw horrific, hellish things. And you're trying to reconcile that. Even though you're saved, you're still living in a fall and die, fallen and dying world. And you're trying to reconcile those things. Nothing wrong with you. You're just working through those things, right? And sorrow and difficulty. Don't run. God uses those things to ready the heart, to fix the heart, to heal the heart. He's going to show you things through that. But today, we don't want that anymore. We're microwave. We want a microwave ministry. We want a microwave life. We want to microwave our feelings. You know, if we're hurting for three weeks, man, it's an ER visit. But it begs the question here, right? If these are vices and they're all part of the flesh, how do you solve it? Well, Galatians 5, 16 and on tells us, walk in the spirit, right? And that begs another question. If it's idolatry, then you must be worshiping something or someone. Who are you worshiping, right? And I believe it's safe to say, if you're walking in the flesh, you're worshiping everything but God. You fill in the blank. It's going to be unique for each person. As 1 Timothy 6, 6 says, now godliness with contentment is what? Is great gain. Is great gain. Because of these things, verse 6, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Please pay attention to this, right? The sons of disobedience, those are unbelievers. Those are Christ-rejecting humans. Wrath of God. How many of you have heard of that term, the wrath of God? We just read it a little bit ago, right? Do you realize that, well, where is it? First Timothy Turn to Revelation chapter 6. Hold your finger here as I just asked you to turn. Turn to 1 Thessalonians. You know what? Praise you, Lord. The book right next to you. Keep one, you're learning to use all your fingers. Keep one finger in Colossians. Keep another finger in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And your third finger in Revelation chapter 6. I know you can do it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I draw your attention to verse 9. For God did not appoint us to wrath. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the church in Thessalonica, right? He's talking to the church. He says, we did not appoint you to wrath, church, but to obtain salvation. That's what you're appointed to. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, 
He doesn't beat the bride. He doesn't beat the bride. It's got to be settled. I know there's people that disagree, and that's, that's okay. We don't need to divide over these things, but we got to study them. Then you go to Revelation chapter 6, because ultimately the question is, is who is the author of wrath? You got, you got to ask that question. Who is the author of wrath? Wrath. Hmm. Revelation chapter 6, look at verse 16. He's speaking of, in context, the first seals. This is talking about the Great Tribulation. Who's the author of the Great Tribulation? Many people believe it's Antichrist. Many people believe it's a whole lot of different things. We know clearly from Scripture that it's Jesus. Jesus is the author of wrath to a lost and dying, Christ-rejecting world. That's what the Bible teaches <laughs> But just so you don't think I have an opinion on this, please look at verse 16. And he said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us. Who are they? The people that are alive. By the way, when Matthew 24 is written, what's the context? It's a Jewish context. He's speaking to a Jewish audience, right? It's very important to understand that. Um, when you read Revelation and you've read, uh, if you listen to the teaching I've taught, it's online. You can get it in the app. If you haven't downloaded our app, I get it. I encourage you to listen to it. Um, chapter 4 says, Meo Tauto in the Greek, right? Anybody that's, you don't even have to be a Greek scholar, like uh, elementary Greek uh, look or understanding of this clearly tells you it's after these things. It always speaks to an end of an epoch, an age, or a change. Every single time it's used in the Greek. Can't, that's not like my opinion. That's, that's not even Greek scholars. Like even somebody that's just learning Greek gets that, right? So I got to ask you a question. When you read the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, right? Revelation is introduction to Jesus. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. It says he's coming, right? 2 and 3 talk about what? The church. And the, what are we living in? We call it the church age. You're, you and I are here. We know the church is here. Praise God, right? We're here. We know that. He didn't harpazzle, right? He, re, he wrote that to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 saying, hey, don't fear. Christ hasn't come. You didn't miss it, right? Because they were afraid. He says, no, you didn't miss it. We're going to be going to 1 Thessalonians next. But what does he say here in particular? Or what was my point? My point is after these things. Well, if I'm just a simple man. After chapter 4 or chapter 4 and later, I don't see the mention of the word church. Again, until right around Revelation chapter 19 and thereafter. Now, God's not grammatically challenged. Do you realize how many times the word church appears in your Bible in all of your New Testament and Old Testament? whether it's the tribe of Israel, right, or the church, do you realize how many times? Is it coincidental that the church is missing after these things? After what things? After the church age, the church isn't here? Is that just coincidental? Did Christ, with all the grammar and everything else, just leave the church out? Of course not. It's because we're not here after these things. What's going to come after these things? This the sealed judgments, the great tribulation. And it begins with these seals. It'll end with the seventh seal or sixth, seventh seal, which doesn't really go into uh, 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 chapter eight. But the point I'm bringing to in verse 16 is who is the author of this? And it said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, Jesus. This is all happening. If you remember, uh, John has visions of heaven and he also has visions of things going on earth and between the two. And from the wrath of who? It's very clear there. Underline it in your Bibles. The wrath of the Lamb. 
Who's the Lamb of God that was slain to take away the sins of the world? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. This is not opinion. This is not, these are beyond contestation. These are not things we even really need to debate about. He is the author of the wrath. He saved us. He said in chapter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, now remember I asked you to go there, 1 Thessalonians 5, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to attain salvation through Christ Jesus. He didn't didn't appoint the church to wrath. The great tribulation isn't for us. Why and what is the purpose of it? You have to ask these questions. What is the great tribulation going to do? Why is the church not need to be here for it? Because it's judgment. It's wrath for a a Christ-rejecting world. That's the whole point of what the great tribulation is for. So why would Jesus Christ, who just saved the bride through salvation, told us that we are now righteous, holy, set apart, that we're a new creation, not an old creation, a new man, not an old man, why would he come to us and then beat the bride? He said he redeemed us. He sanctified us. We got no business in it. We're out of here, man. That's the harpazo. That's the rapture, which can come at any moment. I was praying that it would come so I didn't have to, you didn't have to sit through the rest of this. <laughs> You'd be able to have Jesus do it in heaven, man. A real Bible study, right? Praise the Lord. He'd open up everything for us. But I say this because the wrath, as we read here, when it says the son of disobedience, these, all these passages are like stringing pearls. You can't take them out of context. So this wrath and everything he's talking about, it's not for us. That's why he says, because of these things, because of what things? Because of fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, and idolatry, because of that. Because you rejected Jesus, because you don't know God, because you have turned around and chose to do it your way, like Frankie Sinatra, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves, again, he says it, this is the third time we've read it in the passages that the Lord's been stringing through the Holy Spirit, stringing pearls, as we read 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, he said the same thing, as yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Did you see that? When you lived in them. Titus chapter 3, 3 says, for we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Did, did you catch that? You were once. It's not who you are. It's not who you are anymore. If that's still who you are, then maybe I could come back and go, okay, maybe the great tribulation could be possible for the Christian. But not any longer. I'm a new creation. This corruption had to put on incorruption. This mortality is going to put on, or this moral is going to do what? Put on immortality. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 and on, right? 52 and on. So what are we learning here? Verse 8. But now yourselves are to put off. That's the idea of taking off a raiment or clothing. It's, it's the Greek term for, like, you get home from work, and maybe you have a job where you get older, and you take off your clothes, and you put on clean clothes. That's this Greek word here. Put off, it literally means to renounce or to put away. All these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Anger, arge in the Greek, right? It's originally, uh, it means any natural impulse. 
It means any desire, uh, disposition, and it came to signify what we would know today as sort of anger. It's the strongest of all passions Scripture speaks about. It's used of the wrath of man. We can see that in Ephesians 4.31 and Colossians 3.8 and, you know, um, James 1.19 and 20. It, it's that idea of anger is that um, the agitation of the soul, like something that's, ah, oh, you just can't let it go. It just kind of works at you. Anger. Please see that there. That's what he's saying. But, but you once walked in them, but now yourselves are to put off. You're not to do this as disciples in Christ. We're to put off that arge, that, I mean that anger, excuse me, I use the Greek word. We're to put off that. Wrath, thumas, right? That's hot anger, right? Now we're talking about uh, a fierceness. Have you ever taken metal or watched uh, somebody take a sword or something like that, and they're shaping it or they're, you know, they're making it harder, so they put it in fire? What color does it turn as it begins to get uh, more heated, more intense? Red, right? It turns fierce, red. And then what happens when it gets even, when it's about to almost burst? What color does it become? White, White hot, you said it yourself, white hot, fear, fear, that's wrath. The difference between anger and wrath. Malice, kakea, right? It means ill will or an intentional desire to injure, to injure. Blasphemy, right? Blasphemia, actually in the Greek, blasphemy. That means to universally slander, to distract a speech that's, Injurious to another's good name. So many passages speak of that. Filthy language. Iskrologia. Iskrologia is the word there. And it means foul speaking. Low. We don't really use that term, but you know when people whisper. They speak. It's not what it's talking about. It's talking about shameful. That you would speak of things that would be caught by shame. That if Jesus Christ heard that, you would... Oh, that's shameful. It's obscene speech in communication. And yes, I get asked, so I'm going to tell you, yes, it includes nonverbal gestures. Yes. <laughs> Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds. Remember that? He said to put off all these, and he described anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language. Now he's saying, and don't lie to one another, right? Nobody's arrived. Don't lie. Put off the old man with his deeds. Again, that idea, taking it off, putting it off. And we have now put on a new man who is renewed in knowledge. Where do we get our knowledge? From the word of God. According to the image of him, speaking of Genesis, in my opinion, 127, who created him, right? This is important. He goes on to say, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised, speaking of the physical law and not just the spiritual aspect, nor uncircumcised, the barbarian, that's anyone that speaks the non-Greek language, because back then they would say bar, 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 you know, that's how they came to it. Uh, the Scythian, that's someone that would be a nomadic or Iranian descent. They were called the Scythians. Slave or free, but Christ is all in all. Now, this, this is heavy. But I think this changes everything. And, and, and we're going to close there today. Because this is, you know, with the next few minutes, we went a little bit over, but we're going to close there today. But this is heavy. Because the first thing he says is that we have a choice. What's the first thing he told us to do? Put on the new man. Put off, put on, right? Okay, 
that was used, as I said, for changing clothes. We can, we can picture that in regards to taking off the old man and putting on Christ Jesus. He says, who is renewed in knowledge? The idea here is that the new man is renewed in knowledge because he is hungry. When you're born again believer in Christ and you're saved, you are hungry for the word of God, aren't you? You don't want to just dabble in it. You don't want to just flirt with it. You can't get enough. Do you remember when you first got saved? The tenacity, the, the passion, the desire. You couldn't put your Bible down. For most of you here, it's never changed. Sometimes we say, Lord, light the fire again. But we're living in the last days. Lord, light the fire again. He's coming. I get excited every time I open the word of God because it's his word and he speaks to us. This is where God meets us. Not just here this morning as he's meeting you because it's going forward, but even in your devotional time, God meets you. I mean, does that just blow your mind? You know, those commercials, Doosh. like the Bible, just hold the Bible, open it. Doosh. Like that should... That's the best blow-your-mind commercial because that's what happens when God just goes in and wields that sword. That, that It's not even a, a gyration spear is the term actually in the Greek, but it's, it's that fine, it's not that term I meant to say, it's that fine instrument that he goes in and rips out. And it's only by his word. And it says, according to his image of him who created him, he's alluding to that we're no longer after the Adamic nature. We're back restored right to the nature in Christ Jesus. Remember Genesis 5? We, we were born under Seth after that point because of sin. But now we've been restored back to the image and likeness of Jesus. Man, what did we ever, what could we ever do to deserve that? Now you know why it's by grace, through faith. The greatest gift. Not only does he remove our sin. But he gave us a new nature and made us a new man, a new creation. That humbles me every time I read it. I never get sick of it. See, the first Adam regarded the old man, but that has to be put off, he told us. Now we got to put on the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And this, this point here I'll leave you with. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slayer free. You see, the new man is part of a very select family, the children of God. All of God's cr creation, right? All humans are part of God's creation, I should say, but not all God's children. It's not till we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. It's only the favor of Jesus and us receiving that. And because of this new family, he, Paul, can say, Christ is all in all. Christ is all in all. Now, how many people here have heard of the social justice gospel? Some of you. You have Black Lives Matters. You have Antifa. You have all of these, whether it's Trump and the, and the people out there, right, whoever, right? I don't care. Fill in the blank. The different movements. If you look to the spirit or motive, let's just go to the pure motive aspect of this. If these men and women have the pure motive where they're trying to take, whether it's race, gender, ethnicity, social, cultural, economic, whatever it is, and their hearts are upset, and potentially rightfully so, because there happens to be a group or a portion of population that has not been treated fairly, right? Again, you can, whether it's race, economics, gender, wherever, okay? Those are not bad cares or causes. 
However, that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, that gospel delineates. It actually creates barriers. Let me explain. It's not meant to. They, I don't think they, again, I don't think it's an ill motive that they thought, oh, let's, I, there's probably good, well-meaning people that have thought, hey, we, we need to help those that are less fortunate or in different circumstances. But in so doing, they've raised race to be an identity. They've raised gender to be an identity. They've raised cultural capital to be an identity. They've raised social economic status to be an identity. The one thing, and, and, and dare I say that they set their, light, their sights too low. Some of you, what? Pastor, where are you going with this? Just listen, hang with me. By focusing on race, nationality, class, cultural, ethnicity, you set the bar too low. You set the bar far too low. Galatians 6 would say that you have presented a portion of a gospel. A half-truth is still a full lie. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. My Bible, you and I just read a moment ago, said Christ did for you and I and offers to every single person a superior gospel, the true gospel. Not as Galatians 1.6 says, an alternate gospel. But he says that everything, any attempt to redefine any social issue is a simple alternate gospel that will always come short of the truth found in the true gospel of Christ because you must understand the new work, the new creation, that not only deals with the old man, but also gives us the new pattern that was patterned after Jesus Christ. It breaks down barriers. And it doesn't just break down race and ethnicity and social economic. No, it doesn't break down barriers that separate people in society. What this does is it says among the new creation, it doesn't matter if you're a Greek. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew. It doesn't matter what your physical aspect is, circumcised, uncircumcised. It doesn't matter if you're a Scythian. It doesn't matter if you're a slave, a barbarian, a free. Every single barrier that exists in the human mind through depravity is broken down by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because when you receive Jesus, you're a new man and a new creation. All things have been made new. That's the gospel that we should be adhering to. And we must reject the social gospel because it falls short and it's an alternate gospel that doesn't treat the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's, friends, a bait and switch. Whether that's through the demonic aspect and demonic realm, or that's because it's short-sighted, you fill in the blank. I certainly can never judge another man or the motive of a man. But I know this, that when Jesus said, we are all in all, and he has given that to every single human that walks on life, earth, terra firma, that walks on this earth, every single life that is willing to receive Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, you can be brought into this, as we'll read next week, this elect, you can be brought into this group of believers this family of God, and all the barriers that would separate anybody have been torn down? If their motives are true and pure, that's a better gospel than anything the social gospel can ever do. And if that's true, then let's get them saved. Let's all come to Jesus Christ 
And that's an invitation this morning for those that may be here. Maybe, maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus. And, and, you, and you, maybe you've been hearing the social gospel and in your heart you're like, yeah, that's good. And, and you're right. I mean, it's good to want to help other people. But when you divide by pointing out differences instead of unified like Christ does, somebody's always left out. Jesus Christ is inclusive. He is by definition inclusive and invited everybody into the one true gospel. So why would I want to settle for anything less? And anybody hearing this this morning, you can be part of that. All you need to do is receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. There's no happy dance, magic dance. You don't have to do anything, rub your tummy, pat your head. You don't have to do anything like that. All you need to do is believe as Jesus is Lord, ask him to come and live in your heart, submit to him as your Lord and Savior, and know that you are now part of the family of God, and all of heaven is rejoicing, including all of us. Let's pray right now. Let's pray. Stand and pray with me. Let's pray that, that folks will hear this. Maybe there's somebody here this morning that needs to hear this. The one true gospel, the gospel of reconciliation, not a gospel that tears apart, but a gospel that brings together. That's the only thing that's going to heal this country, not bipartisan or partisan politics. Father, we come before you, and as you've overheard, Lord, we need help, Jesus. Lord, we all know we are depraved and carnal without you. Thank you, Jesus, for our salvation. We pray now for men and women, Lord, all across this land, even in our own Jerusalem here in Harrisburg and Camp Hill in this area. But Lord, just anybody who hears this, Lord, whether it's on the radio or on the web or, Lord, maybe a friend shares it off on the church app or a Facebook, I don't know, Lord. But God, I know that you'll use these words to get into the hearts of your people. And if, God, I pray if they hear this, they would know how loved they are by you, Jesus how you gave your life to set them right and reconciled with you. And there no longer needs to be any barriers for whom the Son is set free. We are free indeed. And that is the truth of your gospel. Thank you that we don't need another narrative. We don't need to divide over race or ethnicity or any of those things. That's all short-sighted, God. Thank you that you've given us a better gospel, a better covenant. And Lord, all are welcome. Thank you, Jesus. I pray that if somebody hears this this morning and they want to ask you to be Lord and say, God, right now that they would just, they would just say, Lord, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Forgive me my sin, Jesus. And give my life to you. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't understand how to do this, but I love you and I believe you are God. And I ask you to come and live in my heart. Save me from my sins. Save me from my depravity. Give me this new life that I just heard about. I want this new life, Lord. I need this new life. Tear all these barriers and these addictions down, Jesus. Set me free. Jesus, I pray that those that prayed that, Lord God, all, has, all of heaven now celebrating, Lord, do a work in their hearts. Guard them. Protect them. Lord, I bring them into a, a Bible-believing church, God, where they can get the word and grow strong, get off the milk and in the meat. For these are the last days, Jesus. And I pray many, many will be welcomed into the family of God today. Lord, we pray for those that are backslidden here, those that have, we've been reading maybe 
haven't been walking. Maybe there's been some compromise or inconsistencies with our discipleship. Jesus, we pray forgiveness. We pray that you would write our hearts and reconcile us to you. We know that we can never be taken out of your hands and we can't lose our salvation. But God, we don't. We want to please you. We want to live for you are life, as we just read. Jesus, you are life and we are entwined with you. There is no compartments. So God, I pray, have your way in us. We pray to you. We trust you. We know that's scary to pray that. We surrender all. We give it all to you. We know it's scary because we don't know. But God, you're a good God. There's nothing to be scared about. Because we trust our lives in your hands and you'll, you'll gird and guard our lives far better than we ever could and our family members and our loved ones. Please, Jesus, have your way in us this morning. And Lord, we just pray, strengthen the body of Christ here as we live in these last days. Help us to finish this race. We thank you for all these things, our perfect, wonderful, loving God. We are so madly in love with you, Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Maranatha. God bless you all. In your holy name, Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. God bless you. I love you.